we did it. We reached 50 Patreon members. And uh, I promised once we reached 50 Patreon members on our uh, Patreon page that I'd do the intro fully nude. So right now, that's what you're getting. And as proof, I'm taking a selfie. So thank you to all these kind souls that uh, helped us reach our goal and allowed me to do the most comfortable intro I've done to date. So Camille Dentis in Wellington, New Zealand, Rob Kelly in Perth, Australia, Michael Rice, Lisa Hannon in Sacramento, California, Rick Bryant in Wellington, New Zealand, Nate in Slovenia, and Mike Ryan in Milwaukee who's actually going to be a guest in an upcoming episode and his interview was a good one. So be on the lookout for that. And there's six more of you kind souls that I'll save that shout out for the beginning of our next episode. In addition, I'll be announcing a big Patreon perk for all our newest and oldest members again on the beginning of next episode. So hope you enjoy this interview. It was a huge sacrifice. I was watching a lot of my peers who were graduating at the same time as me and right out the gate making 60, 70 grand a year. And here I am paying myself maybe $1,000 a month, hustling every weekend at farmer's market to get by. And eventually I just sort of said, you know, this really isn't worth my time. kind of mentioned it before, like people sort of just assume, oh, you're the daughters of the owner and this must just be a a gifted thing. I really loved digging into the numbers. I loved this concept of... I'm Megan Smith. I'm the CEO of Symbia Logistics, 35 years old, and I'm located in Colorado, sort of in between the corporate headquarters, which are up in Edwards, Colorado. Most people would recognize the name Vail. We're just at the base of the Vail Mountain in the Vail Valley. And then I've got three warehouses in the Denver metro area, specifically in Aurora, Colorado, out by the airport. We manage about 350,000 square feet here in Colorado of warehousing space. You're a third-party logistics company? Yep. Symbia Logistics is a third-party logistics company, again, operating more in the warehouse housing and distribution space. We also manage a very large pool of wooden pallets and that's a dedicated customer. So I manage over 1 million square feet of pallet repair and manufacturing space across the nation. So we're from coast to coast. We've actually had two other logistics companies come on and wanted to push our interview back. So we had some space in between them because I guess y'all are good about getting back to people, at least doing these interviews. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. I think over time, what I've kind of talked about in those two interviews, it was episode 108 and 100 or two other logistics companies. It's just like a diverse array of things within logistics. To me, it's like, oh, I just hear logistics. I think one thing, but do you want to describe a little bit more who your clients are and like how you help them do what they need for you to make money? Sure. So logistics really is a category that falls underneath supply chain management. We offer a lot of different supply chain management services and logistically speaking, unintended. Yeah, exactly. Logistically speaking, what we technically do in the logistics space is that warehousing piece. So one of the service offerings that I have is a business to business offering, which traditionally was called public warehousing. And essentially that falls under the category of pallet in, pallet out, 
distribution. So we're covering the warehousing and the distribution side of logistics in that space. Just to give you an example of the types of customers that we might service in that industry, here in Aurora, they just built one of the big Gaylord hotels. They're like big convention centers that are pretty high end and they needed somewhere to store their construction materials. So we were bringing those construction materials in, storing them, and then shipping them directly to the construction site when they needed them. So that's sort of a business-to-business service offering that we offer in the logistics space. Another service offering that we have is the dedicated services, which I've got two examples of that now. One would be the Chet Pallets. They're the world's largest pallet company. And like I said, we manage a million square feet of space for them throughout the United States. And we've got about 150,000 square feet in Calgary. That business model is a full service, what we call closed loop model. And that means that we not only manufacture the pallets, last year alone, I manufactured 2 million pallets in South Haven, Mississippi for CHEP and their tertiary customers, which would be like the Procter and Gamble's, the Unilevers of the world. Those are the people who use the pallets. So I take it from cradle to grave. So I've got the manufacturing side of it where I'm manufacturing new pallets and then those get put out into the world and they get pulled back into what we call return distribution centers. And in a return distribution center, I am pooling pallets from, let's say the Costco's, Sam's Club, Walmart of the world. In all the major cities, we pick up all their pallets, take them to a return distribution center, and we sort them. So we say good, bad, good, bad. If they're bad, we repair them. And then in some cases, we take it all the way to the grave. So we grind it up and we turn it into mulch. So that's sort of the dedicated service that we provide to CHEP. And then another example that we are currently pursuing is setting up three dedicated warehouses for a company called Olympia Chimney. And it'll be a similar process where we're providing all of the management services within the warehouse for them. And lastly, the newest and kind of most exciting service offering that we're pursuing is the e-commerce, e-fulfillment space. And in that space, it's more of a business to consumer logistical service offering. So you go on to someone's website, you order something, and we're the ones who are going to be packaging it and delivering it. And yeah, that's what I originally thought of. I mean, I knew there's other varieties or whatever, but it seems like, is that part of your business expanding more and more with people trying to sell things on Amazon and using you guys as a logistics company? Yep. So we, Symbia, like to say that we're a complement to the Amazon model. The Amazon model is a little bit more commodities based. They are really in the business of efficiency and less in the business of providing customized service. If you've got a product that's in Amazon warehouse, it's got to fit in their specs. It's got to fit in their shelves and it's got to fit in their boxes. The difference in their model and my model is that at Symbia, again, we're providing that white glove customized service. We're looking for customers who need a little bit more of a high touch who are also realizing that brick and mortar is dying, as we all know. You see it every day, JCPenney, Sears, all these big, big names that we've known for all of our lives are slowly disappearing. And what's happening is that we're creating more of these urban warehouses to fulfill the customer's needs. And how I'm fitting into that picture is that I am now providing the experience for the customer. So no longer are you gonna walk into the store and get that customer service, that experience of the light, the displays and the packaging packaging and all that stuff. We don't want to lose that. And many of our customers still depend on that as part of their price point, as part of their customer experience is the packaging is beautiful. Now, when these boxes are being shipped to the consumer's house, we want them to feel like they're still not necessarily going into the store, but they're getting that customized high touch customer experience. 
the reason that we're really different and the way that we're complementing the Amazon model is that we're really providing the same service. You go online, you buy something, we're the ones that package it, we're the ones that ship it. The difference is that we're able to store, let's say, odd-shaped items. One of the examples I use are skis. Skis are very hard to store. They're odd-shaped, they're long. You can't just shove them in a rack. You've got to have them standing straight upright. You don't want to lose the integrity of the ski. You don't want to ding it up, etc. Additionally, the boxes are shaped like skis. So they're not your traditional cubic box. It's a rectangular box that takes a little bit of a different storage technique. Those types of items aren't going to fit into the Amazon model. It's going to be very hard for them to take a pair of skis, store it in their traditional cubic warehouse, and be able to package it in a way that the customer really wants it to be seen. So that's sort of the strategic differentiator that Symbia is going after is we're able to provide that white glove service. We can put a beautiful box together with gorgeous tissue paper, your brand's perfect sticker on top. And when it gets shipped out of our warehouse, it's going to the customer and they're going to feel like they actually had a customer experience. How big is your company today? Can you give us an idea of size and revenue? Sure. So we've got a total of 24 warehouses. Again, that kind of falls under those three categories, the public warehouse, the e-commerce fulfillment warehouse and then the dedicated warehouses. We are coast to coast. So I've got a warehouse down in Pompano Beach, Florida, and I've got a warehouse up in Monteca, California near Tracy, literally spread across the country. I've got about 1400 employees and our total revenue at this point ranges between 75 and 80 million. With your company, I mean, are you only renting all these spaces? Are you buying some of these warehouse spaces? What do you do about that? Currently we're renting and you know, you'd have to sort of rewind. What I haven't mentioned yet is that I'm a third generation in this company. The company used to go by the name Amware, A-M-W-A-R-E. So Amware Logistics was founded in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was actually raised. And in what year? It was founded in 1989. Okay. And it was founded really to service the CHEP customer. That was sort of the biggest customer that we had at the time. And so we've had a 30-year relationship with them, which is really exciting. And that's, again, one of the reasons that people really are drawn to Symbia is that we're not going anywhere. We've been around for a while and I have no intention of exiting the business anytime soon. So very exciting in that perspective. You're acting CEO today, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to ask what makes your story a little different and this dynamic of taking over a third generation business is a big deal as far as people, if they're listening and have a family business, there's a lot of different dynamics than starting one from scratch because your family's involved. So that's obviously a lot different. And then how the employees think of you thinking that maybe you're just elevated because you're part of the family. Oh yeah. That's probably the biggest obstacle that I've had to overcome. Notwithstanding that I'm a woman, I do have an older brother as well. So most people would have expected him to take over the business, but I really was the most qualified for the position. I pursued a degree in business in my undergrad and at 22 decided instead of going and getting my MBA, I was going to take the money that I would have spent on that and start my own business. So I definitely took an entrepreneurial path from the beginning. Additionally, throughout college, I was always really interested in what it was that my dad did. Whenever there was an opportunity to write a case study about his business or dig a little bit deeper, first of all, I took advantage of the fact that I had access to that information. But secondly, it intrigued me. You know, I grew up on the floor of the warehouse, but I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't know what the business did. So I also worked summers in the pallet plants as the customer service representative. And that was pretty eye-opening. Being on the front lines and being the owner's daughter definitely came with its own set of obstacles. But 
What I will say is that I've had to take this business from being a 20th century company into the 21st century. Although it's been challenging, that's also been one of the reasons I've been successful. In 2009, I started my boutique, which was eco-friendly, socially conscious clothing boutique for women and men in 2006. I wrote the business plan in my undergrad. Okay. That's what I was going to say. I mean, if we're all done with Simba Logistics, I think maybe it's best if we reel it back to right when you graduated. And yeah, if you can just give us your timeline when you joined Simba Logistics again. I think that if we take it chronologically here, it'll make a lot more sense for everybody. Yep. So in 2006, I opened Unity Boutique, which like I said, was an eco-friendly, socially conscious clothing and accessories for women and men. And this was before the green movement really started. One of the things that I learned in my undergrad was finding your niche, figuring out what you're really good at and what makes you different from everybody else and capitalizing on that. And I had written a business plan for a consignment clothing store. And when I started seeing this whole social, ethical, ecological movement, I really was interested in it. I found myself very driven and passionate about a lot of those initiatives. And so I saw that in retail and clothing, nobody was doing it. So I started the company in 2006 while I was still in college. I had a business partner who I met through the University of Denver as well. And we just took a big leap of faith. You know, I decided not to get my MBA, which I was very excited about going to get my MBA. And then when I realized that if I got my MBA, I was going to graduate and then I wouldn't have any experience. I wouldn't have any life experience. I wouldn't have any business experience. It was just going to be a piece of paper. And I didn't really feel like it would be that valuable. So I started the company. And you said this was when you're in Denver. Colorado. And you said the company actually started in Atlanta, Georgia, I guess the first generation. So were you born and raised in Denver? Or like, how did you get out there before we talk more about this first company that you started out of college? I was born in Marietta, Georgia Okay. in 1984. I lived there until 96. It was really a function of my family. My mom remarried a native Coloradan. And if anybody out there is from Colorado, you know how important that is, <laughs> that if you're a native, you never leave. Yeah. Natives are pretty proud of where they come from. And And so my mom uprooted the family and moved us out to Colorado and my dad wasn't going to sit by and, you know, never see his kids again. So he decided to do the same thing. And so that's kind of what brought us out here. And what side of the family business was your mom's side or your dad's side on the logistics company at that point? My dad. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's interesting too. Yeah. If they split up and then you're all moving to Denver still. Right. Yeah. I mean, it obviously created an interesting dynamic between my parents. My mom was like, oh, really? (laughs) I thought I got rid of you once and for all. But, you know, my dad moved out to Denver and his classic saying was, I didn't move to Colorado to live in the city. I want to live in the mountains. And so that's really what took us up to Edwards, where the headquarters are today. And then went to school out there. Yep. So I graduated from an all-girls private Catholic school called St. Mary's Academy. It's a pretty renowned academy. We call it the Premier Academy of the West, sort of a joke between everyone, but it is the Premier Academy of the West. And we've had many notable women like Condoleezza Rice graduate from St. Mary's. You know, I always draw it back to that because it was one of those things in my life where I was pretty upset having to go from public school to private school and then especially going into an all-girls school. I felt like I was being punished for something that I never did. And really what it did was create this sort of pioneering spirit in me, this desire to become somebody like the notable characters like Condoleezza Rice, like some of the other great women that have graduated from St. Mary's. And so it sort of gave me this really fierce independence and pioneering spirit. So after I graduated from St. Mary's, I went to the University of Denver and it isn't all that ironic that University of Denver is also known as the Pioneers. 
So go West young man, sort of that mentality has been fostered in me from high school and then continued through college. And one of the things I loved about the University of Denver was that they really fostered an entrepreneurial spirit in their students and really pushed you to kind of think about how could you do something different? Being an entrepreneur is all good and great. Anybody can come up with a business idea, but what about making a successful business? And that's the real hard part. And it definitely takes a certain type of person to pursue entrepreneurship. The stress of running a new business guided founder Yuna Kim to her next idea, a mindfulness app called Simple Habit. The Simple Habit app offers quick audio meditation so that busy people like you can squeeze a little tranquility into their day. We're talking about short meditations that can be consumed in less than five minutes. The Simple Habit app offers hundreds of meditations for free. It's a practical app that offers all those meditations with help on the specific problems of your life, like getting nervous before a big meeting at work or the stress of producing an awesome podcast episode like this one. The Simple Habit app is ranked number one in the meditation category of Apple and Android stores. The app also has 65,000 five-star reviews. So to find out how the Simple Habit app can help you too, then go to simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. Again, the app is free for you to use, but if you want the premium features, which unlocks thousands of additional meditations, then use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. The first 50 listeners to sign up using this link will get a 30% discount on the premium version. So one last time for that special offer, use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. Have you ever booked a rental car and wondered if it was the lowest rate possible for that rental car company and date? Did you wonder if the person in line next to you at Avis or Hertz was getting a better deal? Rental car prices change constantly and you want to make sure you're always getting the best deal. And the company that'll help you do that is Autoslash.com. The magic of Autoslash is that they apply every single coupon code available to you at your booking. They can even apply codes that you qualify for based on memberships like Costco, AAA, BJ's, and more. So by using Autoslash, you're getting the best rate right off the bat. And I can tell you that I used Autoslash for my car rental just recently in Baltimore. I saved $59 by booking through Autoslash.com instead of going directly through the Hertz Rent-A-Car website. And again, it was for the exact same booking. But wait, there's one more thing about Autoslash that's mind-blowing. It's their special rate tracker, which you can use by going to autoslash.com forward slash track. Once you put your booking details in, they'll continuously scan and alert you if they find a better rate. The team at Autoslash says most customers get at least one slash in their original rate, and they've even found slashes for hundreds of dollars for some last minute deals. So to support the show and save a bunch of money on your next car rental, be sure to use autoslash.com. One more time, to save money on your next car rental, go to autoslash.com. Yeah, it's easy to start a business, but it's not as easy to start a successful business. Anyone can start a business, but trying to make a successful business is actually the difficult part. Like anyone can go ahead and start an LLC and get that going. But again, you were saying that they're instilling in you like how to start an actual successful one. Again, why don't we jump back in? It's called Unity Batik. That was the first company you started outside of college. So why don't you tell us how much money you had started and what was your differentiator with Unity Batik? Sure. I definitely nickeled and dimed it. I contributed $26,000 to business and so did my partner at the time. So we started with 52,000. We also kind of had to get a little bit sneaky because 
in order to get into retail, you've got to become a buyer. And in order to become a buyer, you have to have credentials. And my partner at the time, her mother-in-law was a buyer for a boutique in Santa Fe. And there's a big trade show called Magic, which happens in Las Vegas every year. And it's the world's largest retail trade show. So she was the one who said, hey, I know you guys are talking about doing this. Let me get you some badges and why don't you go to Vegas and see if this is something you really want to do. We got into the show and we started looking around. Really, I was the one, you know, my partner at the time, she was all about starting a boutique just because she loved clothes and she loved fashion. She loved shopping. But I was the one who was really pushing this. Hey, we've got to figure out what's going to make us different. Let's really focus on this eco-friendly, socially conscious kind of narrative. And once we got to the show, we realized, oh crap there aren't a lot of brands out there who fit within these parameters. What are we going to do? You had to have some sort of, you know, social or eco cause. So the clothing had to be either made from a sustainable material like organic cotton, bamboo. There were a lot of new materials coming out at that time. So that was one piece of it. If you fit into that category, we were willing to take a peek at your line. Another twist that we found, which sort of came to fruition as time passed was, do you have a social cause that you're associated with? For example, I carried Tom's shoes. I carried Tom's shoes when they just had the basic classic one style three colors. That was it. You couldn't find it in any Whole Foods, any Nordstrom. That was the other parameter. If you had some sort of social twist to your product, we were willing to take a look at your line. Additionally, as some of your listeners might know, you know, shopping in boutiques can be very expensive. So I was very conscious that I wanted to keep everything at retail between $50 and $150. Also, you had to fit in that price point because a lot of the newer, for example, bamboo at that time was a new and innovative material that people were using and everyone was likening it to cashmere. And so it was very expensive. And to find things that people actually wanted to buy wasn't that easy. When we went to these traditional kind of trade shows, we realized there really aren't a lot of options out there. That's when I sort of took matters into my own hands. I started doing a bunch of research. And at the same time, Etsy had become a website and a thing. So I started finding a lot of local vendors and local artisans, which became another category for us because I was like, I need to fill this boutique with product. And it's very hard to find stuff that actually works. Yeah. In the beginning, I carried some of these great brands that you now see like free people. Free people used to be very socially conscious. Now it's sort of just a big chain and you can find it at any mall. But I carried free people. I carried Tom's shoes, crochet kids, threads for thought. Again, a lot of the stuff that you find in the Whole Foods retail section now kind of started at my boutique. So they made it big because of Unity Boutique? We'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely felt like a springboard for a lot of people. And that being said, it's a very competitive space. Retail is very competitive. And I was sort of on the wrong side of retail. Brick and mortar was starting to die at that point. I built a website and I started selling online. And I always tell people it's so funny to me because now anybody can start an online business. You go to shopify.com, you can start a business for practically nothing. I spent $3,000 on a custom website that had functions to sell online. So it was a very nascent thing, the online shopping at that time. And I was ahead of the curve in many ways, but I didn't know how to really take it to the next level because there wasn't a lot of platforms to actually do so. If I can, I would just segue in 2009, I got a phone call from Big Jim, my dad. Is that why you call him? Yeah, we call him Big Jim. <laughs> okay. I mean, if you know him. Right. Yeah. No, I, I shouldn't call him and call him Big Jim. <laughs> right. But everyone there calls him Big Jim. Yeah. A lot of people call him Big Jim. Okay. He's got a big personality, a big booming voice, and he's a fairly big guy. He's pretty stocky. So we call him Big Jim. And I got a phone call from Big Jim in 2009. I was actually sitting in the boutique. He was like, Hey, I think I have an opportunity for you. 
And I'm like, okay, what are we talking about here? He said, well, my customer, Chep, has rolled out a new initiative and it's a supplier diversity initiative. Essentially, they had gone to all of their third-party suppliers and said, if any of you can qualify for any of these minority, veteran-owned certifications, we're going to give you a preference in contracting. It was a mandate that had been sent to them, like they needed to do this. And the pallet business is very difficult to manage. It's not something that everybody can do. And we had a lot of tribal knowledge. So when my dad saw this memo, he said, well, I have a daughter and we could become a minority owned business. So in 2009, that's when I became partner in the business. And I actually kept my boutique running at the same time as I was learning the pallet business. I fortunately have a very large family. I'm one of six and my gorgeous, smart, wonderful sister helped me to keep the boutique open and running while I pursued this new business venture. So yeah, in 2011, I actually moved down to Jacksonville, Florida. I spent about a year down there learning the business between Douglas, Georgia, Jacksonville, Florida, and Pompano Beach. So I had this sort of circular ring and I made the rounds and I learned how to deal with everything from a rejected load to an upset driver to going and meeting with corporate at their head headquarters, which used to be in Orlando. While I was doing that, my sister was here manning the store and I kept it open until 2013. So I was doing both those businesses until 2013. Okay. Well, yeah, Jacksonville, Florida, obviously a wonderful place. I don't know if you forgot that I'm there right now while we're doing this interview. Oh, I did not forget that. Okay. That's why I brought it up. Nicely done. <laughs> I was like, I thought that's what you said earlier in our pre-interview, but I want to make sure. But I was going to say, before you actually closed down Unity Boutique and you got the call from your dad, can you tell us, like, were you making a profit at Unity Boutique? And like, how was that? Because I imagine it's your first company. You're probably working a lot, excited. But what I find out a lot is that it takes a little while to actually start making money from your first company. Yeah, I went from doing about $100,000 in sales a year to $300,000 when I closed the store. Again, it was just one boutique. So that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of other small boutique retailers who weren't doing nearly that well. Yeah, I was making money. And this is what, something I realized, you know, it was never going to be the kind of money that I expected to make. I definitely, like I said before, I cut my teeth on that small business and it was a huge sacrifice. I was watching a lot of my peers who were graduating at the same time as me and right out the gate making 60, 70 grand a year. And here I am paying myself maybe $1,000 a month, hustling every weekend at farmer's market to get by. And eventually I just sort of said, you know, this really isn't worth my time. I'm more valuable than this. It was hard. I didn't have weekends. When everybody else got time off, that's when I was busy. Black Friday, I'm there early in the morning getting my sales discount racks ready. And on the 4th of July weekend, we have this huge festival on the street and I'm there all weekend. And really what I also learned is that not everybody can do the job and you can't replicate yourself. My customers really loved working with me and that was the bottom line. It was really hard to find a salesperson who could do the same work that I did, who could offer that customer service, who could nail $2,000 in sales in two hours. I did it like the back of my hand. I loved doing it as well. So when it's your own business, of course, you're super passionate about it. You love it. But finding people who are equally as passionate is really difficult. Didn't you say you had a partner as well? What happened with that? 
I did have a partner and you're very savvy to have picked up on that. <laughs> so I actually bought her out a couple of years into it because, you know, it was sort of the same thing. Like I was making a lot of sacrifices and I was willing to make those sacrifices. But when you're in a partnership and we were 50-50, I expected the same. And I expected my partner to treat the business with the same love, passion and care that I did. And it wasn't just some side job for me. I was very young. She was older than me and she had gotten married and she had wanted to start a family. And so for her, it was sort of, oh, this is going to be a side hobby. And for me, it was like, no, this is my life. I signed up to do this and do it all the way. So when it came time to part ways, I mean, we did so in a very loving way. We're still really good friends and it was best for both of us. She wanted to spread her wings in a different way. And it really allowed me to actually pursue what my passion was, which was that eco-friendly, socially conscious, reasonably priced items. It allowed me to do it with complete control without having to ask for permission. If you're still friends, it sounds like it went well. I mean, if anyone else was experiencing this, these are the things that are kind of hard to Google from time to time, you know, like, right. how do I break up with my partner and make sure everything's cool? I mean, do you have any suggestions on how someone should do it? Yeah, I think that the first step for me was just having the conversation. And it wasn't an easy conversation. But again, if you've ever been in a relationship, if you've ever had to talk to your parents about something that's difficult, you kind of put this big buildup in your mind. And when it comes down to it, what usually ends up happening is that you're both on the same page. And that's kind of what I found is that I had put so much thought into it. I was so nervous. I didn't know how she was going to feel because we were friends and I really cared about her and I cared about her family and her husband and her siblings. And we had kind of created this marriage with each other. And so it was sort of like getting a divorce a little bit. Really for me, it was about, you know what? I just want to have an open, honest, transparent conversation right now. And I've learned this over the years. It's not that easy for other people to do either. It might not be easy for you to do, but it's also not easy for them to do. So if you can come at it from a very compassionate, empathetic way where it's like, hey, you know, I think we're both struggling here. Again, I think that being a female, we were a little bit easier to empathize with each other, but emotions definitely fly and it did get emotional and it was emotional in the sense that she was pushing back or that I was pushing back on her. It was just sort of sad that this is kind of the end of an era for us and it's the end of our relationship from a working perspective. Otherwise, I already had kind of my ducks in a row from the financial perspective. I knew that I was going to have to buy her out on some level. So I was prepared to do that. I made her a fair offer and I had the paperwork and all the documentation ready before I had that conversation. Yeah, that's smart. And then let's talk about when you go into the family business, when your dad gave you that offer and then you're moving. Tell us what that dynamic was like, because, you know, obviously going to own your own business is still running on the side, but I guess your sister's kind of taking it over. Let's just talk about how that all worked and going from head boss to having to talk to your dad or whoever in the company. Yeah. So to make matters even more complicated, actually Amware was owned by the Smith family, but also another family. So we had partners too. So I didn't just have to report to and communicate with my dad. I also had to report to our other partners. And how many were there? It was my dad, Jim, his original partner, and then his partner's wife. Okay. That was sort of the agreement was that if you're going to bring your daughter in to help fulfill this initiative, well, I want my side represented as well. Yeah. And that sounds fair to me. Yeah, it definitely was. Okay. The biggest difference again was I think that this, you know, kind of draws back to the fact that I am a female, but I 
made a very conscious decision that I wanted to be able to stand on my own two feet. I never wanted to depend on anybody else to pay my bills. I never wanted to lose my passion in life. I've always been very competitive. I was an athlete growing up. I'm very competitive in school. I was very competitive with my friends, my siblings. And that's not normally traditionally inherent in women. That being said, I was 20, let's see, 25. My partner was over 20 years older than me. She hadn't worked for 20 plus years. It was very much just kind of a handout to her. And she just wanted to be a silent partner, but we were 50-50 partners. So again, it was all about that, like who actually can make decisions? Because I'm the one out here hustling. I'm the one moving to Florida. I'm the one making all these sacrifices in my personal life, which I have done, which is a whole different topic, but I didn't have my husband to sit there and pay my bills and continue to give me that life of luxury while I received this side income. That wasn't my situation. You said you were 50-50 partners. Is this when quote unquote like Symbia was created? I guess I'm just just like you losing that because I thought there'd be right. four partners now would be 25% each, right? Just explain that. So we're on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> it is not very black and white. And again, this also goes back to being a family owned business. There are inherent complications when you're generationally taking things over. So this always makes people laugh. So hopefully you get a kick out of it. But the legal name of my company is Palette Management Services. The acronym is PMS. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Women owned, proud. Yeah. So anyways, PMS is actually owned 51% by a company called MA Enterprises. And MA stands for Megan and Amy, who is my partner. We owned MA Enterprises 50-50. MA Enterprises owned 51% of Palette Management Services, which is now Symbia Logistics. So they were separate entities, essentially. That makes sense. Like a real estate transaction, especially commercial real estate, you could have like 30 people own a property and it could be 30 different LLCs underneath one LLC right. or whatever. But you're saying there's like one LLC or one company underneath there. And that makes sense. So if you just look at it like a little table and having two boxes, so that makes sense. Yep. It, and you need 51% in order to qualify for this opportunity for the logistics and exactly. woman owned. Okay. At this point, you're saying you moved to Jacksonville, you're figuring things out. And from the standpoint of, are you making more money at this point too, of whatever role you're in? Are you just one of the lower roles at this point? I imagine they didn't make you CEO right away. Well, I was the president okay. of the company. Again, MA Enterprises was essentially just myself and Amy mm -hmm. at that time. It was kind of a glorified title, right? And it was the guy's wife, right? Yes. And then from there, what happened? Well, fast forward to 2013. In 2013, I ended up closing Unity Boutique because I was having my first child and I didn't feel like I could manage both businesses anymore. And I was making more money on the pallet side of things. And I wanted to pursue that. I was actually becoming very passionate about supply chain and logistics and not surprisingly, it ran in my blood, but I felt like it was where I fit, especially mentally. It was very mentally stimulating and challenging. And you kind of mentioned it before, like people sort of just assume, oh, you're the daughters of the owner and this must just be a gifted thing. I actually have a pretty big brain, despite what people think. I really loved digging into the numbers. I loved this concept of efficiency, of creating processes that blew away the competition. That was sort of what was becoming my passion. So in 2013, I closed my boutique and I started focusing 100% on the pallet side of the business and on starting a family. In 2014, we had the opportunity to buy out the partners that we had in the business and become 100% family owned. And that's what we did. So when you asked about real estate and that kind of stuff, that sale included the 
sale of a few warehouses that we own. And then it also included the sale of Amware Logistics Services, but also Amware Fulfillment Services. So we have been doing e-commerce fulfillment since it was really a thing. And we sold that company in 2014 to part ways and kind of get this divorce from our partners. That's when you had the split there and everything worked out okay on that end too. I assume you're going to be 51% still of Symbia yep. woman-owned. Okay. So I became the majority shareholder of MA Enterprises, which is the majority shareholder of Symbia Logistics. And I actually brought on two of my sisters as partners. They're minority partners. They work with me. So my sister Aubrey is in the quality side of things. And as you can imagine, quality is very important, especially on the chap side of the business. That's what she's been focusing on. But now that we're in this e-commerce, e-fulfillment space, I mean, you're expected to have near 100% delivery, quality, accuracy, all that. She kind of runs the quality side of things. And then my other sister, Leanne, is technically the executive assistant to myself and my dad, but she also has started pursuing some roles in the accounting and finance department, which has been great for us to have sort of an inside family member pursuing that side of the business. So they work with me on a daily basis. They're now my partners, which I'm really proud of. And it makes me excited to be, again, 100% family owned and know that we've all got this great future together. You didn't sound super excited when you said y'all become fully family owned because I sounded like there's some resentment about the other woman being in the business, right? You mean the previous partners? Yeah. Because you're saying you're working so hard and she's just kind of chilling. You know, I would be super excited, kind of like you were with the Unity Boutique. I mean, it's since before because it was your friend, right? Yeah. If the other woman's not your friend, I think I would be pretty excited. Well, you know what? It's not that I would say resentment's a very strong word that I wouldn't use in this situation. But what it was is they were practically family as well. I grew up with them. Okay. Being so they weren't even real. Okay. Yeah. See, so uncles. I had no idea about that. Gotcha. Yeah. So it wasn't that I expected anything else from my partner because I knew her very, very well. She and her husband lived practically next door to my dad when I was growing up. So I grew up with their kids. I grew up as being a part of their family. We were really one big family, but they had very different, as you could tell, very different dreams of their future. And I was young. I was tenacious. I was ready to get after it. And yeah, I did feel like my wings were being clipped because of the partnership. So it's not that there was resentment. It was just, that was the reality I was facing. And we were very fortunate to have come up with a really creative solution to part ways, again, in a really positive manner. Our old partners are pursuing their own lives now and their own dreams, and they actually live in Florida, and they're very happy. They're more or less living a retirement life, and that's what they were looking for. I, on the other hand, am out there, fast forward 35, although I don't feel like I'm nearing the end of my career by any means. I also don't really feel like it's just starting. I feel like I'm right in the middle of it. And I feel like it's literally my time to just completely take off. And so that's what's so exciting. I feel like I've got not only the experience, I cut my teeth on small business, but now I'm the majority owner. I've got this amazing title. I've been able to build this business and rebuild it from scratch again alongside my father, which to me, it's like I really couldn't ask for anything more. Need a new logo for your current or future business? Well, BrandCrowd is an awesome logo maker tool that can help you make an amazing logo design online. If you're an entrepreneur, startup founder, innovator, thought leader, or basically anyone who owns a business, well, BrandCrowd is a fantastic and easy way to get a logo. BrandCrowd takes your business name and industry and generates thousands of logos in seconds. BrandCrowd uses high quality handcrafted designs 
created by designers from around the world to create custom logos just for you. Once BrandCrowd generates a logo you like, you can edit and tweak the logo, changing fonts and colors until it is perfect for you. One of the best things about BrandCrowd is it's free to get started and begin generating logos. Plus, it's super easy to use. Once you're happy with your logo, you can download all the files you need to start your business. If you don't like any of the designs, no problem. You don't have to pay. So to find out more about BrandCrowd, go check out brandcrowd.com forward slash maker. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D.com forward slash maker. So after the partnership split, did you start instituting like certain things right away? Because I want to hopefully get some tactical Mm -hmm. stuff out of you that people could learn to grow their family business when they're taking over or just business in general. Yeah. Fundamentally, again, it was two families. We had a different set of values. We had different beliefs. And I had said this before, but one of the things that I think I've been very successful at doing because this is a family business and there are a lot of legacy practices, right? Legacy people, legacy practices, legacy sites. I've really been able to take it from being a 20th century, old school, old boys club into this 21st century where it's more about inclusion, diversity, transparency, ethics. And really what I've been successful at doing is becoming employee centric instead of being customer centric, which is what we always were doing. We're always chasing the customer, always making the customer happy. And sort of just, it was a revolving door at the warehouse, like in and out, in and out with our people. And what I've done is, first of all, built a brand with Symbia that people can stand behind. That's something I'm really proud of. And that's something that I took a huge part with my first couple of years as the CEO was creating these mission statements, the vision statements, the core values, the website, the brand, the name of the company, and really creating something that people were proud of and kind of mirroring it off of companies like Southwest Airlines. Red Bull, even Apple, in the sense that it's recognizable. My employees are really proud to be a part of this team. On top of that, we take much better care of our employees. Before, we didn't even really offer benefits to the warehouse workers. And now they've got access to benefits. They've got access to 401k, a lot of that stuff that we never offered before. And did you rename Symbia right after you took over? And what's the meaning behind that? Why you switch a name? Well, Amware wasn't an option anymore because we had sold that company. And also it came with its own set of legacy practices. And you know there was already a reputation surrounding it, what people thought of it. As I mentioned, the legal name of the company is Palette Management Services. First of all, the acronym extremely embarrassing. It's a male dominated space still. None of my guys wanted to walk out there and be like, Hey, we're PMS. So that was one piece of it. But also I wanted something that didn't pigeonhole me into palettes. And I wanted something that spoke generically about what we were trying to achieve and not just I'm a palette management person because that's not all we do. And that's not all we were capable of. And so where Symbia came from and really the root word is symbiosis. Well, first of all, I mean, you can imagine you're going out there, you're doing these name discoveries, you're trying to find a business name. And at this point, a lot of them are taken up. You can't find a website. First of all, you've got the .com. Then you can also get the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. All these things with one name are very hard to find. There was that piece of it. It was like, I needed to find something that didn't exist. PMS.com was taken? (laughs) PMS.com was taken. Or else you would have named it that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what we had tried to do was we went down this path of being palette MS, 
But then it was like, well, do our palates have multiple sclerosis? Like <laughs> that doesn't really work either. So yeah. It's not super easy. I agree with you. You got to take time to try to figure it out. I had to even Google what symbiosis was because I forgot. I remember I learned it in seventh grade or something, but Right. Do you want to explain that just in case that we have people around the world? I would love to. Symbiosis is essentially when you've got two parties who are in a mutually beneficial relationship. You find it a lot in science and marine biology and those types of situations. And that's probably where you learn the term is when two beings really cannot exist without each other. They're in a mutually beneficial relationship. And I love that concept because again, taking this company from a 20th century business, from being very customer centric, where we're willing to bend over backwards for our customers into the 21st century, where we were becoming partners, where we were saying, hey, let's create a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's really been the basis of our future and what we've kind of springboarded from, where it's not just customers, but employees as well. We create mutually beneficial partnerships between ourselves, our employees, our customers, and our stakeholders. Good name change. Now we can't use it, but I'm glad you found a good one. So what else did you do other than, you know, you saying you're going in there, you're taking care of your employees. I mean, can we get some more stuff that maybe we could learn and implement in our businesses? Because again, I just feel like once you rename it, you've got a lot of good ideas. Some things had to work and some things didn't work probably. So can you just give us some ideas of both? Sure. One of the things that we've done over the past couple of years are a lot of acquisitions, whether that is actually purchasing and acquiring companies, or I say that term also to mean we have gone in and taken over facilities that were previously run by a different third party. So in doing those acquisitions, you also acquire the people. And I use this as kind of an example of some of the challenges that we face. You know, you're asking people to, again, fly a different flag, work under a different banner. And a lot of times people, first of all, get scared that they're going to lose lose their jobs, that now they're on the chopping block. So you've got to deal with a lot of that side of the human aspect emotionally. And really one of the ways that we've kind of overcome that challenge is by creating a lot of hype around it saying, hey, guess what? This is exciting. You're joining a national operation. This isn't a mom and pop shop. This isn't, we're coming in and we're looking to clear out. We're coming in and we're looking to make things better. And the first thing people always want to know is what about me, right? What am I going to get paid? What are my benefits going to be? What's been very important to us is that we're offering these people something better than what they had before. Additionally, to go along with that, you know, if we're offering something better, what do you usually expect in return? We expect them to also be better. Maybe not work harder, not work longer hours, but let's work smarter. And so what we've been able to do is really say, look, here's an opportunity. We've got all these better benefits, better pay, but we want you to understand that you're joining our team. So we've got some better processes and it might be different and it might take you a couple of weeks to get used to this. But what we ask from you is that you take this on full force. And of course, what you find is that some people are like, heck yeah, this is great. You know, if I do this the way that you told me to do it, I'm saving an extra 15 minutes each time. That's the goal, right? But then some people just can't overcome it and they say, I can't do this. I'm not used to this. This isn't what I want to do. I liked the way I did it before. And so unfortunately, you've got to make those decisions. And usually that comes within the first 30 to 60 days where we say, all right, here's the top 
50% of people who we know are going to make it. And here's the bottom 50%. And then we coach them. We try to keep them a part of our team. But if it doesn't work out, we've all got to recognize that it might not. And that's really been some of the biggest challenges that we've had to overcome and how we do it. It's not just offering better benefits. It's not just offering better pay, but it's also offering, hey, you're going to join our team, which is a really strong team of people who span across the nation. You're not just now working for a local mom and pop in Kansas City. You're working with a network of people who you're going to start communicating with folks in Reno. You're going to start communicating with folks in Chicago. You're going to start communicating with folks in Aurora. And it really gives them an opportunity to grow their career too. I could see where, is it about 50% work out and 50% don't? I would say it's probably more like 70, 30, 70% usually stick around. It's hard for people to change anything. I mean, even if you're coming in trying to sell them on this, like, hey, everything has the potential to be better, right? Like to be an upgrade, to be excited. But then some people just start getting inside their heads. What's going to happen? Are we all going to get be fired? Or they tell me the truth or whatever. Because what happens if their old company didn't tell them that that was going to happen and then it just kind of happened? Yeah, I could definitely see that being an issue. But again, I guess it sounds like how many of these transactions have you done? Because it sounds like you've had some experience doing it. Well, just in the past year and a half, we made four acquisitions. And those have been all in the public warehousing and e-fulfillment space. We purchased a company in Aurora, Colorado. We purchased another company in Kansas City, one in Reno and one in Chicago. Throughout those acquisitions, again, it's honestly been more exciting than anything for people because we are typically purchasing more mom and pop shops. So the owners are really jazzed that their company is going to be joining this national network. Oh, so you keep the owners on too? The owners don't leave? Yep. Okay, gotcha. Again, it's situational. So for example, at the company we purchased here in Aurora, Colorado, Rusty Walker, the gentleman that owned it before, is now on our payroll, on the Symbia team. And he is pumped. You know, he just can't wait. It's like he gets so excited at the opportunity to go out and pursue business he never could pursue before, whether it was time that he didn't have or financial resources he didn't have to pursue them before. Now he does. But on the flip side, let's say Reno, the gentleman that owned it before, he was older, on his way to retirement, and he was ready to get out. So once he had the opportunity, he stuck around for about the first six months and he made sure everything was great and that the transition went smoothly. And now he's not really part of the team as much anymore. But that being said, what we find is that once we start getting in there, there's just so much opportunity. And what's happened is that even though he's not technically working with us anymore, my dad was just hanging out with him last week and talking about business. So the 3PL warehousing world is definitely a small world. And a lot of these people have known me since I was a small child. And so it does feel very much like family. It's been really kind of fun to bring all these families together under the Symbia heading and all these great owners who have done really awesome regional work. Now we're getting to like leverage them on a national scale. Yeah. And I could see if the boss is going to stay on who's joining y'all that a higher majority will probably stay with the company versus if it's someone's leaving, maybe the guy that you were just talking about, maybe all his employees still stayed. But if the owner was going to kind of get out, I could see where like more of the people there, it'd be harder to keep some of them. Again, depending on the environment and all that other stuff. With all these companies that you're buying, are you just making like a lot of money doing what you're doing and saving it in an account to go buy companies? Like how do you do this from a technical standpoint? So in 2014, when we sold Amware Fulfillment, we were in a non-compete with the venture capital company that bought it, rightfully so. They put us in a non-compete for years so that we couldn't replicate what we did and start competing right away with them. But we've maintained a really good relationship with them. 
in fact, my dad has purchased back a lot of that company. He's a minority owner, but he owns a fairly significant amount of shares in Amware to this day. And that being said, we've got a great relationship with Rotunda Capital who bought the company. So in 2014, when that happened, we made a very conscious decision, both Jim and myself, that we were literally going to financially run very lean. And we were just going to be more or less saving as much as we could so that when we had permission, we could start buying and creating this network again of e-fulfillment companies. So that was the strategy from 2014 to today was that we were going to focus on our core customer, which was CHEP. And at the time they made up hundred percent of our revenue, which was very risky, mind you. And we didn't have a lot of diversity in our customer base. We had a very large revenue stream, but with one customer. Again, we did take on a lot of risks, both Jim and myself, when we pursued that business and bought out our partners, sold Amware. It's like, okay, we're going straight, like full force pallets and kind of became the pallet queen for a while where it was just, that's all I did all day, every day. Again, just making that conscious decision to have a strategy. I think that that's something people like to talk about, but they don't actually do. And Jim and I sat down and we did that. We said, you know, this is going to be our strategy. We're going to really pursue this pallet business hard. We're going to grow it to about 50 million. And once we do that, it's going to take a couple of years. We're going to stabilize. And then we're going to take the money that we've made and diversify. So that's what we've done. So the profits that you're making from your company, were you just holding in the company account or were y'all personally taking out? I'm just curious from maybe even a tax standpoint or anything like how you decide, hey, we're going to hold this money over here for a later date for when we want to purchase all these companies. We held most of it and we've got- In the business account? In the business account. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. Which again, you know, when we made that conscious decision, I say we ran lean, like we ran lean personally as well. And people are very surprised when they meet me because I'm very down to earth and I'm not really into brand names. Neither is my dad. I mean- you'll see him and it's like, what in the world? Like people are like, that's Jim. I'm like, yep, that's Jim. You might find him wearing, it'll be snowing a blizzard and he's wearing a pair of shorts with Tevas and, you know, knee high mountain socks. And you're like, what in the world are you wearing right now? But first of all, welcome to Colorado. And secondly, that's just how he is. It's sort of, you know, I'm his daughter. I'm not much different. Was he getting his stuff from Unity Boutique? <laughs> oh yeah. I outfitted my entire family. There you go. Yeah. That was probably the most fun part of it was that everybody, my friends and family got to come in and shop and I got to see them all the time. But yeah, we definitely ran lean financially, both within the company, but in our personal lives. And that being said, we did make a lot of investments in the pallet side of the business too, in order to, again, be good partners and kind of create that symbiotic relationship with our customer. So that's really the beauty of working with a third party is that we can do things that a global company can't do, whether that's purchase equipment or on the people side of things, there's a lot less risk for us than there is for a big company like Chubb when we've got 1,400 employees and they've got, you know, 20,000. We definitely got creative in terms of how we became better partners with CHEP. And then we also lived a pretty lean life, both internally and externally. So what's been the hardest part about doing all this? Because I don't know if we've like really hit any of things that really gone wrong. It sounds like some of the partnership stuff was a little difficult for you to deal with. I mean, even for a partnership breakup standpoint, it seems like things went pretty smooth. So what's been the hardest thing about doing all this? You know, I don't typically talk talk a lot about my personal life, but it definitely has taken a toll on my personal life. And again, being a female in a very traditionally male role in male space, I travel a lot. 
How much is a lot just so we get idea? Sure. Well, again, it's seasonal. It kind of depends on what the initiatives are and why, but I would say about 50% of my time now is travel, whether that out of the state or in the state, whether I'm between Edwards or Denver or last week I was in Columbus. I'll be back there in a week and a half for a different conference. I do a lot of customer visits and I also do a lot of plant visits. So I do travel a lot and I have two kids. And what I will say is, yeah, it's been very difficult on a personal level. I think that people use the expression a lot. It's very lonely at the top and it is for me. It hasn't been easy because I do think a lot of it is because I am a female. And so I've had to make a lot of very non-traditional decisions to get here where I am. And some of them, I think some people see it as selfish in some ways. And I see it as doing the best thing that I possibly could for my kids. That's what I'm always focused on, creating a really bright future for them. Also showing them what hard work is. I'm not afraid for them to see that their mom's out there being a boss. And last night, it was so cute. I walked into my daughter's room and she has a little vanity and she had set up, I was in Columbus last week, so I always try to bring something home for them. And I got a free notebook from the conference. And so I gave it to her yesterday and she was, you know, I said, oh, I brought you something from the conference. Like, it's just for you. And so I walk into her room and I see her, she's six years old. So she's just learning how to write words and things like that. And so I see it says Laura's flower shop, completely misspelled, but she's already coming up with business ideas. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. I'm so proud of that. So all the sacrifices that I've made, I feel like are worth it. So that's probably been the hardest thing is kind of losing some friends, some relationships that I was in because I was willing to make some of the hard sacrifices that maybe those people weren't. And now you have to share this interview with your daughter and she'll enjoy that as well, I'm sure. But I mean, you said you're doing some non-traditional things. Can you expand upon that? Do you mean just by like working a lot, by having kids or what do you mean by that? Let me think about how to answer that question. You didn't think I picked up on that, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Again, like most people don't really ask about my personal life, my non-traditional life. Right. And I think that's what makes our podcast different because I get tired of like, personally, when I started the actual podcast is everyone always painted a pretty picture. So at least like, you know, putting yeah. you on a stool and acting like nothing goes wrong. You know, look at she's taking over this family business, killing it. Everyone's go through stuff. And I think actually being able to hear that from some of the people we talk to, the people listening are entrepreneurs and going to go through that stuff. And they're going to be like, wow, she made it through that or whatever. Then I can do that. It's just like, it's what's going to happen along the way while you're growing a business. Yeah. You know, like I said, I'm the second born. So I do have an older brother. And I am one of six. So there are a lot of inner family stuff. Yeah, I can yeah, see that. hardships that I've gone through in terms of internally in my family. And, you know, what I will say is that unfortunately I've had two failed marriages. And I won't say that that's necessarily because of the business, but I will say that being an entrepreneur and the sacrifices that I've been willing to make to pursue my dreams have made it a little bit difficult to find a partner who understands why. So it sounds like we just had to find find you an entrepreneur husband? Is that the deal or no? (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm looking right now, but um, (laughs) yeah. If people wanted to email you and see if you're available, should they do that? (laughs) Trying to help you out, making this a win-win. I know, right? Well, what I will say is that I'm very big on genuine relationships. I'm very big on finding people who are also equally as passionate about what they do, whether that's friends, boyfriends, family, what have you. And what I don't do is 
I don't really put myself out there in a lot of the ways that people do these days, like on Tinder or Bumble. I'm definitely not on Match.com. And that's a good question because you kind of ask yourself, how do you find somebody or how do you find friends? How do you find people who have common interests in you when you're 35 years old? And all of the social events that I go to are typically for networking. So I don't have a lot of time to necessarily pursue both friendships or relationships. And I have two young kids, so I come with a little bit of baggage. <laughs> I mean, I'll get real with you too, because it's like similar for me. I'm 33. I've got some friends who look like they're just going to party the rest of their lives, right? And right. it's just like, okay, do I keep going down that route or do I actually like put myself out there, try to meet new people? Because it's difficult, especially if you're running your own business like you are. It sounds like obviously a big family business and you're traveling as much as you are, then it makes it difficult to find those relationships that can also help yep. you feel fulfilled. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, similar, you know, I went to private schools. I never really grew up with having a ton of money. I grew up very middle class, maybe upper middle class. You know, my stepfather was always actually more successful than my dad until I got to be in college. I have a very different perspective on life than a lot of my peers did. And many of my peers were trust fund babies, fourth generation. They knew that they were never going to have to work. They were never going to have to put anything into it. And I still, to this day, wonder like, when are they going to stop partying? Because <laughs> I've never had that luxury. I've never been into drugs and partying in that whole scene. Like I just don't have time for it. It's not something that I'm interested in. So when I say, you know, I've had to make a lot of sacrifices and there have been difficulties, that side of it has been really hard for me. I don't have a lot of friends anymore that I really, you know, I've got a handful. And like they say, you know, if you can count your good friends on one hand, then you're doing just fine. But because I've lived all over the country too, one of my best friends is in San Francisco. My other best friend is in Nashville. And one of my best friends is here in Denver. But life gets in the way and everybody's busy. So it is difficult. It is kind of lonely. Yeah. That's why some of the people listen to this podcast. If you're running your own business, they're probably in the same situation as you. Right. Especially if they're single and have kids. That seems like it would take up 95% of your time exactly. between the business, that, and sleep. Like you only have 5% to figure out what else you want to do. Yeah. And if you're a good parent, like, of course, you're putting your kids first. And a lot of people say like, oh, I'm so proud of my kids. But to me, my kids are an asset. I worked hard for that. Like, not only did I go through pregnancy and all those things, but like, I'm really proud of them. And I really want to spend that time with them. And so it is very important to me. I also will say, which just to add to the craziness of my life, I'm actually pursuing my master's degree right now as well. So that extra 5% is always going to school. It will be done in August, but yeah, it's a busy schedule that I've got going on right now. You got a busy life. And thank you for sharing that. Again, if people don't ever share that, when that happens to somebody else who's listening, they're going to feel even lonelier. So yeah. I think that's important to share that part, the sacrifices that you have to make, because the reason you are where you are versus those other friends that are trust fund babies, there's a reason, right? Because right. you're putting in the work to get to that point. Kind of here in closing, I mean, is there anything else that you want to leave with us or one last thing if we're looking back for anyone who's starting their business or in the middle of it trying to grow? Sure. I guess one of the things that I've been asked before is like, if you could tell yourself something when you were first starting, what would you say? And one of the things that I kind of always fall back on is don't sweat the small stuff. You're doing big things. If you're out there hitting the streets, boots on the ground, pursuing entrepreneurship, there are going to be a lot of days that you feel like it really isn't worth it. What am I doing? Why am I sacrificing this? I mean, a lot of times you're not making the money that you thought you were going to, but as long as you've got the perseverance and push through it, you really are doing great things. Whether it's great things for yourself, great things for your community, great things for the business world, small acts 
small work becomes big things. And I think that's important too. Thanks for saying that. But the perseverance part, that's what separates you, you know? There's so many ups and downs along the way. And it's just, mm -hmm. if you can get through it and you have a solid plan like you had when you were got acquired or ended up parting with your dad, you said everyone talks about kind of having a plan, but how many people actually do it? But if you can have a plan and persevere and see through to the end of it, then usually good things can happen. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story, Megan. And I guess if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you? Sure. Sure. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Megan Smith, and just add Symbia to that because there's about 5 million Megan Smiths, but I'm very easy to find on there. And you can feel free to email me. Again, my email address is pretty easy, megan.smith at symbia.com. And my name is spelled the simplest way that you possibly could, M-E-G-A-N-S-M-I-T-H. <laughs> And that's what I was going to say. Yeah, make sure you put Megan Smith Symbia because I kind of find you. But once you put that, you're the very first one. Perfect. And if there's any single good looking entrepreneur males, I guess you're interested too. They have to send a picture. <laughs> again, I'm not sure if I'm really on the market, but thanks for offering. Yeah, anytime. Well, thank you again for coming on and doing the interview, Megan. Thank you, Austin. Do you know someone who would be an awesome guest to have on the show? If you do, then send us an email at... Austin at millionaire-interviews.com. We're always looking for smart, beautiful entrepreneurs who are willing to share their story. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com.